Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 20th, 2021, Inauguration Day for President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. I am John Podhorst, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, a great <laughs> honor, a great privilege, uh, uh, a, a supporter of the show, fan of the show, friend of the show, Megan McCain of The View and many other forms of conservative commentary in liberal precincts. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm so excited. I pitched myself to come on. I was like, I'm not going to wait anymore for you guys to invite me. I'm just going to invite myself. And then Noah was nice enough to reach out on Twitter. And I think I'm this podcast, like definitely like top five fans, maybe the top fan. I listen Every single day, including when I was pregnant and including after I gave birth. So that's pretty pretty much commitment. And I started listening um, every day during the pandemic. I had been listening before, but then I got consistent because we were locked down. And I felt really ideologically alone and like just really lost in the world. And this podcast really, I was like, these are my people. Everything they say is what I feel and how I feel like just simpatico. And I just really think you do important work. And I'm... I love the podcast, so please keep doing it forever. I'm well, okay, and that's our show for today. <laughs> <laughs> Can't beat that. Thank you so much. But you know, of course, this is a this is an extraordinarily important day. We have a the 46th president of the United States, yeah, sworn in. Weirdly enough, sworn in nine minutes early. There seemed to be some uh, bad watching of the clock. The 20th Amendment says that the transfer of power takes place on the 20th of January at noon. Um, somehow they got ahead of themselves. I thought it was coming because Kamala Harris got uh, sworn in by Sonia Sotomayor, who, I have to report, mispronounced Kamala Harris's first name. We've been making fun of Noah for months for finding it her, him unable to get the name right, saying Kamala instead of Kamala. And there... There, there, there does Sonia Sotomayor make the Noah Rothman mistake. So that was Noah is now excused from all time for having for, for having done that. See, uh, very important. That um, is the beginning. That's the beginning of calming the temperature. You are now allowed is, to mispronounce Kamala's name. Noah Rothman on yeah. the right and Sonia Sotomayor on the left. Yep. They are together in their inability to pronounce. Kamala Harris's name. Uh, it seems like a failure of imagination to me. Either she's, uh, you know, has has some trouble with this name, or she's terribly racist. Um, <laughs> really, no in between. Okay, well, so we should entertain that prospect. Okay, we 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 we, we can go there. So, um, um, <laughs> Megan, I have so many questions to ask you. Uh, uh, but I first of all. Uh, uh, given that I hope you'll you'll excuse me as the son of somebody uh, famous, though less famous than than your late father, I feel that it's okay for me to invoke your your father. But you know the the kind of message that that Joe Biden uh, articulated in his inaugural address was very much in concert with the sort of things that your father said during his run. For the presidency, uh, uh, oddly enough, uh, though they though they were they're ideologically divergent in 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 many ways, uh, uh, Biden and and John McCain. Nonetheless, they, this speech harkened back to at least a 
a mode of discourse in which there was a lot there's a lot of references to uh what binds americans together what's common to all americans the unity of the united states and all of that that we obviously really haven't heard for the last 4 years yeah and i was struck by uh now president biden saying give me a shot like give me a chance people that didn't vote for me um i mean it's certainly a tenor shift i feel like I felt very calm watching the inauguration today, but I also feel, and I don't know if the three of you agree with this, like I'm very, 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 very cautiously optimistic, huge caps and in red cautiously, because we've been told for the past you know, four years and especially in the past few months that Republicans are the root of all evil. I know not everyone's a Republican. Some of you are libertarians or consider yourself conservatives. I'm technically still a Republican right now, although like that feels like a big you know, mess right now as well. And so I just don't want to go back to tomorrow where AOC is blaming me for the root of all all problems in the universe. So I want to believe it, but I feel like we've all been run down and sort of scarred from the last four years. And I don't want to be emboldened with all the sins of the Trump administration. And I never thought it was fair. And I continue not to think it's fair. So Biden saying, you know, I will be a president to all Americans. This this would be the least controversial thing ever said by any president ever, particularly in an inaugural address. That's what you're supposed to say. Mm-hmm. And of course, the secret to Donald Trump was that he never said the thing that you were supposed to say. He said he said the things that you weren't supposed to say and made people believe that the things you weren't supposed to say were the truth and that he was a truth teller and honest in a way that other politicians and I guess that's partially a the challenge that faces Biden, which is he spent two years running on this message that he could heal the country. The country was divided. We need to come together. Um, uh, I think it's the message that got him the nomination, along with not being a crazy person like everybody else in yeah. the Democratic race. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean that he's going to, become a conservative Republican to get Demo- to get Republican votes. The question is, is there any can there is there any teeth to this or is there any enduring power to this because uh, there is no common ground. I mean that that is the question. Are, is there common ground in the United States or are the parties too far apart on everything? Well, you know, that's interesting because I think what's uh, notable, what was notable and and praiseworthy about what Biden said was, and this is much like uh, Biden himself, especially during the campaign, was um, what the speech was not. It was not partisan. It was not explosive. It was not divisive. It was not marked by, you know, pseudo factual red flags that would, you know, then be fact checked and picked through. Um, I think in part that's because to assert something um, in the policy realm right now is to dip your toe into what he termed the the uncivil war. Um, So, no, he will not uh, suddenly become a conservative. Um, We should remember, and this this is in keeping with um, Megan's bright red, cautious optimism, (laughs) that... um, Barack Obama early on spoke in somewhat similar terms. It was a different time, but he spoke about there not being red states and there not being blue states and, you know, there not being 
I, I don't remember all the divisions he sort of uh, tried to to, to um, paper over. So you know there is a tradition of that, um, but we 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 certainly need to to push him um, on this more now than 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 we have in the past. We sh- we should expect some follow through on this, considering the state of things. It's just hard to know what that what it means because you can't you can't not expect a guy who won by four and a half percent and won by uh, you know ninety electoral votes and is uh, the head of a party that runs the house though by a razor thin margin and and has control of the Senate by no margin. Um, simply by dint of the fact that the vice president can break a 50-50 tie. You nonetheless, you can't expect him not to advance his party's agenda, which is very radically different from the Republican agenda to the extent that the Republican Party still has an agenda after Trump, who, of course, was anti-agenda, uh, you know, couldn't figure out what his agenda was, and he was very inconstant, and um, uh, and so we're in a weird position here, Noah, because uh, Biden wants there to be healing, but I don't know what it is that he can say or do in practical terms that will bring the parties together, with the maybe with the exception of the coronavirus relief uh, package that I guess will be taken up beginning this week. Yeah, I suppose that's task number one. I mean, I sort of do. A lot of the themes in this speech I you know, thought was an opportunity to flog my, hop, my hobby horse uh, and happily did, which is up on the blog as we speak. Uh, a lot of what he talked about insofar as he was saying, you know, we need to see each other not as adversaries, but as neighbors and treat each other with respect and join forces and lower the temperature. And how do you do that? Um, and he was saying, you know, politics does not have to be a raging fire, destroying everything in its path. Every disagreement does not have to be cause for total war. And the means by which you can achieve that, in my view, is to relegate politics to its proper place, meaning the conduct of legislative affairs, Um, If we're going to reduce every disagreement to the point that it is no longer cause for total war, the stakes of those disagreements must be reduced. They must no longer be existential. And they have become existential in part because of the progressive project. The progressive project has elevated virtually every apolitical facet of life into a partisan signifier. It's not a conservative project that rendered fashion a statement of racial identity. It's not a conservative idea that transformed the food you eat into a social identity or the or the fact that we now have two national anthems that play before sports events. This is to the progressive imagination inclusivity, whereas to half of the country, country it feels like bifurcation, division, and cause for conflict. And it's this is the sort of thing to which Biden's nominal allies, suspicious as they are, but they are nevertheless on the left, could be responsive to because... He's a Democratic president. He has the microphone and can change the, t- the conversation in a way that they will be compelled to respond to just by virtue of his position. Um, many may resent it. He may not engage in this project. He may not even mean half of what he said. But it is nevertheless a promise um, that he can make good on. And it's incumbent on us to hold him to it. But Megan, mm-hmm. so I think one of the easiest things presidents can do is throw rhetorical bones to their supporters. Because uh, it's it, it, it's it's cost free, right? You uh, you you adopt their language, you adopt their terminology, you give speeches where you talk about 
how moral and just and righteous their causes are. And then you kind of, it's sort of like Reagan with abortion. Uh, you talk about it and talk about it, but you do absolutely nothing. You don't lift a finger. And yet uh, the fact that you pay lip service or you pay obeisance to the cause is very important to holding your base together. And I think this is the question that Noah raises. Is the Democratic Party's base, will it need identity politics as the bone that's thrown to it? Or are we really talking about a much broader and more, um, you know, more uh, broader America in which it's not necessary, in which people don't, this isn't the first thing they think of is, you know, use the word Latinx, talk about transgender mm-hmm. bathrooms, you know, do stuff that, do stuff that speaks to that base, but talks more broadly to the interests and concerns and feelings of the broad American middle. I don't know how they reconcile this. I, I was, I don't want to say radicalized over the summer, but I was deeply, deeply impacted. I don't know if it was partly because I was displaced from the place I had lived since I was 18 in New York. I don't know if it's just because like, you know, we saw so many American neighborhoods being torched and the media was telling us that it, you know, it was peaceful, mostly peaceful and fires are okay. And looting small businesses is okay. And the cause is great. And it really impacted me in a way that maybe it's just getting older. Maybe it's just because it was so dramatic. And I can remember Kamala coming on the show and I'm going to paraphrase this, but asking her, are you for defunding the police and can you define it? And her answer was like, well, you define it. And I wanted to be like, I'm not running for vice president or president or whatever. Like, I don't understand it. And I freely- was shocking. I remember writing about that moment because it was such a transparent tactic. The design there was to get you to define it so she could say whatever you defined it was wrong. Yeah. And it means whatever it means, whatever you want it to mean. Right. But she wanted you to make up the definition so that she could shoot it down. It was so nakedly opportunistic and, and dishonest. I don't claim to be like a like a high intellectual like I I'm a talk show host, like but I my job is to try and translate some of this stuff to people in the middle of the country and women and men who don't pay as much attention to politics as, as all of you do. And I still can't get a straight definition that I cohesively completely understand about what defunding the police is. It seems like this mythological, like, well, we need to remove some funds from some areas and reimagine what police are. And I'm a, if I'm, I, it's a privilege for me to call the police if I'm being raped and I need to recognize that. Like all of it is in my, my perspective, in my opinion, just com- completely absurd and ridiculous and was really impactful for me because who wants to live in a neighborhood where you like, you know, can't call the police. And also the way I was raised, I'm from Phoenix and I grew up in a very like, you know, red area. I was raised to respect authority and I was raised to respect the police. And I understand that we can have conversations about, you know, the the killings of unarmed black men. And I've certainly had, it feels like hundreds of them since this summer, but I don't know how Joe Biden and Kamala answer that question to someone like me who was disgusted by the Trump administration, who was, you know, I was beyond, I cried like the way I cried if someone died when I watched the Capitol being attacked to the point that my husband, Ben, was like a little put off by how emotional I became watching it. And I, I don't know what happens though, because if you're going to tell me that defunding the police is the, is the opposite, then I don't want that either. So I don't know how they answer that. And that's a long-winded answer. I mean, the interesting question is, I, I mean, I think what, what Noah is alluding to is the fact that, of course, one of the reasons that Joe Biden got the nomination is that he wasn't the sort of candidate mm-hmm. who would say defund the police. But he's got this 
base of people behind him who like the slogan. Um, and now the question is, can you uh, live with both poles? Can you say defund the police on the one hand and have Kamala Harris escorted to her, you know, to her seat at the inauguration this morning by the Capitol uh, policeman who directed the mob away from the Senate chamber so bravely, the one that we, the one that we had been told wrongly in the early hours had somehow directed them toward the Senate chamber, but had actually cleverly steered them in a different direction and therefore basically kept Mike Pence from getting physically attacked. Um, you know, so on the one hand, they get to say defund the police. On the other hand, they get to celebrate the Capitol Police when the Capitol Police behave in a way that they like. And and you saw these polls over the last two weeks where uh, Steve Cohen, the congressman from Tennessee, is saying, like, we got to be careful about the National Guard. You know, it's so white. That means everybody, white male, everybody voted for Trump and the whole thing could be penetrated by QAnon. It's like, really? You're allowed? You can say that? I mean, what if I said that every black person was a panther? I mean, this is like, you know, support because they were black and poor and male, they were all black panthers. Like, this is an amazing circumstance the Democratic Party finds itself in, in which it, it feels it's all conditional. Like, as long as things are happening that you like, you can support the police but as long, or maybe this is on it. Maybe it's better. You know, maybe it's sort of like rather than saying we support everybody, do or die in every way possible, every way, shape, or form. And you say no, I support them when they're good, and I want them to be, you know, disciplined. Individual police officers disciplined when they're bad, or individual members of the National Guard disciplined when they're bad, or something like that. Maybe we're going to move into a category closer to that, but. Um, but you're doing that is the same line. Sorry, Megan. No, no. But you're doing a lot of explaining, and in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing. Like that's a lot of. I don't understand. What does it mean? Be real simple. Like give me a soundbite, and no one can seem to deliver that. So I, I and I don't know. I I echo everything you said. This like, is the same it. lie. Yeah. It is the same lie to which the MAGA hardcore MAGA right is beholden, which is that these institutions are arrayed against you. Not there are no, it's not that there are bad apples, it's that the institutions themselves have been so thoroughly corrupted and their interests are so uh, unaligned with yours, antithetical to yours, that they cannot be reformed, they cannot be harnessed, they cannot be directed in in a way that is beneficial for society. They must be raised to the ground. It is a lie. And it's one of the sources of the kind of civic unrest that we've seen over the course of the last year. Part of the, um, problem now um, is that the sacking of the Capitol put the wind at the back of the radical wokesters, right? Because it kind of put meat on the bones of their allegations because we saw huge crowds of bigots um, saying crazy things in massive numbers. Uh, We saw the side that was... um, against political violence, committing political violence. Um, so it is, it has given them a sort of renewed sense of purpose and um, kind of uh, given them a moral leg up on the right. And, and that makes it even harder for someone like Joe Biden, who is not necessarily aligned with them down, down the line, but um, makes it much harder for him to deny them. 
I mean, I think we're I think we find ourselves in a in a in a fascinating position where you know Amy Siskind, who was one of the leaders of the resistance, you know, tweeted out yesterday or something. We deposed a dictator, but of course we didn't depose a dictator. A president was uh, was removed from office by the electorate by by you know uh, seven and a half million votes, four and a half percent of the electorate, ninety two million ninety two electoral votes. Like that's how we removed the. By definition, he's not a dictator if he serves for four years and then gets kicked out of office by the electorate. It, it, he would only have been a dictator if his preposterous effort to overturn the results of the election had had any viability, which, of course, it didn't as officials in the three states in which he really pushed his case all said, you're a crazy person. Um you know, uh, and uh, this, by the way, gives me a, a moment to ask you. You grew up in Phoenix, and uh, and there is now word that the uh, Arizona Republican Party, which has been taken <clears throat> over by a psychotic person named Kelly Ward, um, uh, is planning on censuring your mother for having uh, for having endorsed Joe Biden. Your mother, who, as far as I know, is not an official of the Arizona Republican Party, and therefore what it means to censure a private citizen who is not, you know, somehow in the management structure of an organization uh, is, is, is pretty shocking and appalling. Like, you know, I, I would like to now pass a resolution of censure of Al Sharpton, who <laughs> actually happens to be in my office building. <laughs> and the commentary office shares offices with Al Sharpton, whom I've been on TV with and stuff like that. But, you know, I mean, I really don't have the power to censure Al Sharpton. Um, but, uh, you know, there you are as a, you know, there you are in the, the first family of Republican Arizona and this, you know, insane thing is happening. Yeah, I mean, it's really weird. They're also censuring Jeff Flake and Doug Ducey, and Doug Ducey is currently holding office. Obviously, Jeff Flake is no longer in office. Um, on the censure, it's, it says Cindy McCain and all members of the McCain family. And I was like, First of all, you can't actually do that. Like, I don't even know what you're talking. It's like me, like you said, it's like you kicking Al Sharpton saying I'm censuring him from the world. Um, It's quite the uh, reaction to losing both Senate seats and having the state go blue for the first time in like 60 something years. Your reaction is like, screw Cindy McCain. Like, it's it's just bizarre. There's a bunch of people that um, the woman who's running, and I don't even want to say her name, even though everybody probably, you know, follows knows she's a total radical conspiracy theorist and i don't think it's a great look for the republican party in arizona but i'm also not uh what i struggle with is like i'm not a maga person i've never been a trump supporter but i also didn't become a, a fixture of the resistance either i always tried to call like balls and strikes because i see why conservatives are so angry obviously there were many things that happened during the Obama administration that horrified me. There are many things that happened under the Trump administration that horrified me, but at the root of who I am, I'm a conservative and I never understood how Trump becoming president turns you into a liberal. Like I don't understand like automatically abortion doesn't matter to you and like foreign policy doesn't matter to you and taxes don't matter to you and Israel doesn't matter to you. Like it just it's out the window. So that always confused me. And, but I think the Republican party in Arizona, I mean, they're going to make a choice. They're either going to go like the rest of the Republican party. They're going to be, full MAGA in the, in the image of Trump. And that means that the McCain family is censured and banished to another state, I guess. Um, or it means we're going to be inclusive and try and work together and move forward. And I do not know what the answer is. 
I don't really give a shit about Kelly Ward censoring my family. <laughs> right. Whatever they want. It seems like I tweeted at her, what are you so scared of? Yeah. Like, There's a self-defeating you know, aspect to this that needs to be teased out. Um, you know, there's to to censure Doug Ducey by Kelly Ward is shocking because you know the National Review had this editorial yesterday. We should say Doug Ducey is the governor. Yeah, governor. Doug Ducey is the governor of governor. Arizona, and Kelly Ward is somebody who was picked by twelve, you know, by twelve guys in a back room to be chairman of the Arizona Republican Party. It's like not. Well, this is my point. That, that National Review had this National Review had this editorial castigating the the Arizona GOP for going so crazy. And, you know, somebody predictably comes out with this very Trumpian line that's like, ah, these elites in the beltway hate the voters. It's not the voters. Voters elected Doug Ducey. Voters have consistently rejected Kelly Ward. The voters of Arizona have said, no, thank you, Kelly Ward. It's the institutions themselves, which are, by the way, now committed to rewarding failure. She's run for office like a million times and loses by a lot every time. But political parties exist for one purpose alone, and that's to secure political office. When they don't exist to do that, they do a very bad job of whatever it is they're supposed to do. I suppose now the institutions are supposed to incubate a, a persecution complex or dedicate themselves to the advancement of a personality quirk. But that's not what they're designed to do. And they will self-marginalize in the process because they won't be winning elections. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing. So, you know, I, I it occurs to me that... You know, an early example of what was going to happen here, sort of the ideological purification of a party came um, in 2006 when uh, your dad's great friend and, uh, you know, the father-in-law of my best friend and the guy that you you roasted at our commentary roast yeah. a couple of years ago, Joe Lieberman, um, was primaried in the Democratic primary in uh, Connecticut uh, for the sin of having supported the Gulf War and having uh, been given a hug by George W. Bush at the State of the Union, and uh, he lost the primary. Now, then Joe then turned around and he ran as an independent in Connecticut, as the most popular politician in Connecticut, and won as an independent, and then didn't didn't run again. But you could see how um, you know an issue like the the Gulf, the the Iraq War created the conditions under which the most popular politician in a state, uh, popular because he was popular with Republicans, independents, and Democrats, uh, was ousted by the activist wing of his party. And then you had something similar happen in 2009 to 2010 when Charlie Crist got a hug from uh, (laughs) running for set, got a hug from Obama and Marco Rubio used that hug to knock him out of the Senate race and knock him out of the Republican Party and become a senator. Um, so, Noah, your, your, your prescription that a parties are meant to win elections has to have two – there's two faces to it. One face is uh, that uh, the bad guys or the guys who are s- stirring up trouble have to lose the elections, right? They primary people, they win them, and then they have to lose them so that the party can see the damage, that was done. The secret of the Trump revolt is that Trump won. If Trump had lost in 2016, then we then people would have said this is of a piece with what happened to Aiken and Murdoch and Angle in the Senate races in Indiana, Missouri, and uh, in Arizona. And uh, basically, you go too extreme, you can't win. We got to moderate and pull back to a some more moderate position. But he won, and then all of the restraints were let loose. All the sort of, not Machiavellian, but like prudent 
politicking to the point that Roy Moore was the Republican candidate for senator in in Alabama. Uh, remember, I mean, Roy Moore. Trump. What's really dis- disturbing about that is the the moderate conservative stalwart candidate who you were supposed to support if you opposed Roy Moore in that race was Mo Brooks. No. Luther Strange, there was a kind no, of... Luther, yeah, no, Luther Strange was the establishmentarian oh, right. pick who was forced on on Donald Trump, who somehow Donald Trump got behind him briefly and then was very mad that he was compelled to get behind him. And, took and, you, know, and you, know who talk, you know who talked Trump into like going all out to help Roy Moore win? Now the now-pardoned Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, who walked Trump into the buzzsaw of like supporting... No. Yeah. That was Bannon who talked Trump into supporting uh, supporting Roy Moore, and then Roy Moore lost the Senate race. Okay, the seat is now back in Republican hands in 2020. But um, so we are in a weird position where parties are now thinking, particularly at the state level, that they're more than just vehicles for winning elections and representing a general anti-democratic or conservative tendency. Right? They are purity tests and clubs and. Uh, I mean, I think we've all heard. I'm sure Megan, you get these emails too. It's the, this kind of thing of we are gonna we are gonna drive all of you rhino neocon this. We're gonna drive you out of the party. Parties aren't supposed to drive people out of yeah. a party because that reduces everyone who's driven out. You reduce the number of elect by one. I mean, so you know, you're trying to get people to vote for you, not throw them throw them out. Um, So uh, let me just uh, take a break here and talk to you guys about Headspace. Uh, As you can hear, I'm kind of agitated. So maybe I should listen to Headspace, that meditation app (laughs) that advances the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Because, you know, even in the new year, it's hard to start a new routine. But if you are one of the 34% of Americans who has made a resolution to be less stressed, Headspace is here to help the daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in the easy-to-use app, whatever the situation, Headspace can really make you feel better. Overwhelmed Headspace is a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Its approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. And it's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits 600,000 five-star reviews and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Um... Can I yeah, just to <clears throat> bring what we were just talking about back around to Biden? Um, so Biden ran his campaign by, in some sense, dodging the purity tests, right? He never, he never, he, he, he sort of said, I'll tell you later, or, or just sort of wasn't around to um, be, uh, to, to face the, the inquiry. Um, you can't do that in office, right? So a, a huge part of what we were talking about at the start of, of whether or not he's going to um, govern in a way 
that supports his message of unity and lowering the temperature will will the answer will come to pass i think when he faces some sort of purity test on policy what is that going to be well i don't know you know i think presidents can pick and choose way more than you realize they can i mean he uh, trump uh, conditioned everybody to believing that the president was going to was going to open his mouth on every subject under the sun 10 times a day Ronald Reagan, for whom I wrote speeches, spoke four times a week and otherwise did not appear that much in public. Now, granted, that's a different time. It's a different era. There's no there's no 24 hour news cycle and all of that. Um, And, uh, you know, Obama kind of pulled us into a into a different realm also because he loved. being. I don't think it's all that different a, a situation. Barack Obama did dominate the culture, the political culture, the regular culture, every, every aspect of civilization during his presidency, but he was dictating terms to the news cycle. Donald Trump was hostage to the news cycle. He reflected whatever was on television that he had watched. He was responding to the news cycle. So in that sense, segment producers dictated the terms of our national debate for four years. That's not normal. And that's not something you have to actually commit yourself to that. It's hard to do that. It's exhausting to do that. So I don't know why Joe Biden would want to do that. Well, he can pick and choose, is my point. I mean, I think there are things about which a president must speak. National crises, you know, uh, uh, tragedies, um, you know, and legislation that he really wants to adopt and support. But he he got himself elected president by going quiet, by being quiet, not being loud, by not thinking he had to be – I mean, you know, a few times that I've worked in, you know, in, in campaign cycles – uh, there was always this idea that you you wanted opportunistically to get into the news cycle, you know, add a paragraph to a speech. I'm sure Megan knows this from her her dad's runs. Like add a paragraph to a speech so at five thirty, so that your your soundbite can get onto the news at six thirty. When that was a thing, I guess it's not really a thing anymore. Um, you know, because then you get into the news cycle and your thing is th- and you're there. Um, but now if you're president, you don't have to be there because you're there anyway. You're occupying the mind space. Uh, he's not a candidate and he showed the, the power of silence, I think. Well, I think to Abe's point though, uh, there's going to be a come to Jesus moment that he very tactfully dodged the entire time. There were things that I really wanted him to answer directly that they just wouldn't come out probably because it would polarize one side or the other. But if you think the squad and AOC isn't going to start putting his feet to the fire like tomorrow, I, I just, I don't see it. I think they have just as much infighting problems as we do. And he's going to like, are you for the Green New Deal? Like, do you think climate change is an existential crisis on par with terrorism? Just answer me clearly. And I felt like we were really done a disservice by the debates. Um, I was really disappointed in most of them. And granted, one of them just just so off the rails because Trump brought it off the rails, but there's, I don't think he can do it forever. He can probably do it for a long time, but there will be a moment at some point where he's going to have to start, you know, answering some of these questions. And it'll be interesting to see which side of the party he, he bends to. I mean, I, this is, you know, obviously this is the, the, the key question of our time, which is how, how, where is the center of gravity in American politics? Uh, the president always defines the center of gravity in American politics. And, can he pick and choose or will or will he or will he go along with the fact that his party's center of gravity shifted i mean you know 
Obama was pretty left wing. Uh, his party now, because of Trump, the reaction was to throw it into re- into a into a state of near revolutionary opposition to the American system. That was the subject of Abe's. Yes, this is a revolution piece. I mean, it's a point. The argument was: we are systemically racist. We 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 are we were born in evil. Uh, we are still dealing with the evil. It's not fair. Nothing's fair. The institutions are looking to hold down uh, people of color, and uh, and and that's that's life, and that's where the party defined itself in the summer of 2020. Now we have this great patriotic show of flat two hundred thousand flags on the mall, and and you know, and 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 a glorious, a very patriotic speech given by the new president. Um, if I if I told you that was the speech that was going to be given by a Democratic president on on January twentieth, twenty twenty one, on July first, twenty twenty, you wouldn't have believed me. That's not how that's not how his party was talking about the United States. I was actually struck by that too. I was like, oh, so we like the national anthem now or the Star Spangled Banner, whichever one is trying to be redone. I don't remember which one people say is problematic. And we like flags now. And Nancy Pelosi was wearing like a big flag pin, which I know that's just sort of anecdotal, but it's overt displays of American patriotism. And I feel like for the past, especially the past year, the message has been from the left that America is an irredeemable place and the things that you thought you believed are, it's not true. And to see this shift is, I don't know how they're going to sell it to some of the parts of their party. And I'm also like, were was it genuine? Was it, was it a genuine feeling or did you just hate America when president was in charge? Because I, to the left patriotism has always been conditional. It was, it was never the case for the right up until the last four years, in which case it was, well, it can, this, the country is okay insofar as this, this, and this. But also, you know, it's been really screwing you. And, and in that sense, it's not really that great. Unconditional patriotism was a value that I was brought up with mm-hmm. and that I continue to adhere but to. Trumpian it was never a left-wing value. But Trumpian patriotism is conditional. I mean, look. Oh, yeah. That's what I mean. That's what I'm saying. Okay, if you're talking about Trump, that. They I borrowed mean, this, this sort of. Um, yeah. suspicion and hostility towards the nation as it was founded from Democrats. I mean, the tone of January 6th was genuinely bizarre because it was this idea that, you know, they're stealing the country from us. They're stealing. We have to go down and make a show of force to get it back from them. So as they're storming the Capitol, they're chanting USA, USA, like it's like they're at Darling, the Darlington racetrack at the Darlington 500. Like it doesn't you know, while they are, and then saying, this is our house. So therefore, apparently, because it's their house, they can trash it. Like, I didn't know that that was something one did to one's own house. Can can I ask you all a question about January 6th? So I was was at work here in D.C. Um, I mean, I work in D.C. at the ABC Bureau. That's where we're taping The View right now. Um, And when I came home, it was like happened around like three in the afternoon. And when I first started seeing it, um, I, I went in and I, I, my husband was, uh, in the other room and I made him come in and watch with me. And I was like, something horrible is happening. And then obviously it got progressively worse. And like I said earlier, I was, I could not stop crying. I was, I was really, really, it was comparable to like a, a another kind of terror attack. And I, I 
have friends that didn't react quite as viscerally that weren't that were upset but weren't sort of having this like paradigm cultural moment that I've had and I can't tell because I feel like my barometer with some of this stuff is pretty off right now because I was like this is it he's going to be impeached the end and I've actually been shocked to see so many Republicans still defend it or try and like you know explain it or what about it uh you know using what aboutism so do you think it's the same you know, cultural and and societal impact that I think it was and this like shift in politics or I'm, but Ben told me, my husband, he was like, you love symbols of Americana. We named our daughter Liberty and you love the Capitol. I spent my youth going there and watching my dad work and, you know, seeing it trashed is just still disgusting. And I just want to know if it meant the same, if you all reacted the same way. You know, I'll tell you sort of behind the, as it was going on and we were all texting each other, uh, I said to Noah Aben, the absent Christine Rosen on the text, like, I think I need to write a blog post that says Trump needs to be impeached and removed from office like tomorrow. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Am I? And they were like, no, go, go for it. Like you, you we have to do it. You, you need to say it. I mean, I, I wasn't crying, uh, but you know, I mean, my, my jaw hung open for, you know, four hours and I, mm-hmm. I had, I myself had the emotion a little, like Charlton Heston, you know, at the end of Planet of the Apes. That's what you feel like, you know, that, you know, you animals, you did it. You finally did it. Like, this, force, this negative, awful force that was bubbling and that Noah and I both faced in, in 2015 um, from this wave of anti-Semitic nastiness that started flowing at us on Twitter and at Ben Shapiro and various other people. Uh, Bethany Mandel, who used to uh, work with us, um, you know, this conservative Trump's Trump skeptics um, got it first, yeah, and we all and we got it from these weird Twitter accounts with weird Central European revel, you know, names of Central European fascist figures from the night. So the sound of sneering from our colleagues in the media, for whom this yeah. was sort of a no, and then, right, and then one person in the liberal media started getting it. That was Julia Ayafi of, of, of the Atlantic. She started getting it. And then suddenly it's like, they're coming, they're coming. Oh my God, it's horrible. And then people formed a commission and there was, all this stuff. and you know, we had been dealing with it for, for months. All I'm saying is like, there was this, it was like Trump turned over a rock in American politics. Uh, and, and a lot of stuff started sliming out and then somehow they managed to quell it. But it was like it all just came rushing back and all of that and the fact that it was directed not by whoever it was directed by or it was, you know, but that the president of the United States is the person who summoned those people to the Capitol to have the rally and then said, go down to the hill and, you know, make a show of strength. That was the thing that was like, OK, you know what? You're not allowed to do this in, in a civil society and you need to be extirpated from the civil society if you do something like this, but you know, but also what the what the what the January sixth did was um, when Trump had first uh, sort of turned over that rock, and we and we saw what was under it. We never were quite sure were these people did they represent a significant force? Were they uh, at home? You know, in a, in a basement um, and sort of therefore kind of rendered incapable of actually doing anything. January 6th decisively answered that question, that, that, that there is something actually to be taken um, very seriously here. And right. th- 
that was that was one shock of it. To, you know, I, briefly, I, the the what what Donald Trump did was he summoned up this mob, and the day before, on January fifth, he threatened the Senate with them. He said, "You know, this, these people are coming; they're going to be in their thousands, and you're not going to you're not going to they're going to stand for what you're about to do, what they're about to do, which was the the certification of the already certified election results, like a true Caesar." And it was it was precisely what Alexander Hamilton had warned about. It was Madison's worst nightmare. And to to acknowledge that would be to ratify all the critiques of this president that have been made from people with who we don't agree with and regard as obnoxious. And that's really frustrating to admit that they were <laughs> that right the all along. But there are two things about that. I just want to. So in 2015. Uh, I went at the people who tweeted nastily at me, and I tweeted nastily back at them, often quite profanely in all of this, and my wife said to me, what are you doing? Like, you, someone's going to come and shoot you. And I'm like, nah, these people, they're all losers yeah. living in a basement. I don't think, trust me, like, they're all hiding behind, they're cowards, they're hiding behind. So uh, I wouldn't do it now. Um, you know, I have three kids and I, you know, it's probably not that you could sort of figure out where I live maybe. And I wouldn't, you know, I live in, you know, it's not so we, I don't li- live in a lone house in the middle of the woods that you can blow up, but you know, it's like seeing a bunch of people, there were, there were only like 12 or 15 paramilitary people at the head of that riot who clearly had a plan for what they were going to do, march through the crowd, crash through the barricade and, you know, zeroed in on the door they were going to go through but you only need 12 i mean you only need one crazy person to assassinate someone and i thought they were ridiculous and in fact in 2015 2016 somehow twitter in particular figured out that there it was almost like the deaths that like they figured out that there were there were accounts that somehow were creating tentacles around and they once you shut down some of these central accounts, the whole problem kind of vanished. Uh, but QAnon isn't that. QAnon organized in a different place, in a different way, and obviously triggered people. The people who went to the, the guy who went to the Comet Pizzeria uh, and various, and then uh, and then at the rally. So it's 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 not the same people, and it's an entirely different thing when. When you have a president of the United States lying for two months, saying I lost the election and they're about to steal the country from you, it is a matter of virtue, of Republican civic populist virtue to come to Washington and not allow this theft to happen. That was that was the evil of it, in my view, was that it 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 wasn't just a cynical bid for power. It was a kind of brainwashing of people to think that doing something monstrous and illegal, storming the Capitol, trespassing, and looking to kill people who were were doing something different was good, right? That's, I think, the difference. Um, I want to ask you uh, about your, what it's like, uh, what what do you think it's going to be like on your show now that Trump is gone? Uh, But before I do that, I need to talk to you guys about our next sponsor. If I can just find the ad that I unfortunately X'd out, uh, trying to find the ad 
for Bambi, our new sponsor this week. Because uh, when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat from onboarding to terminations. They customize your policy to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day. Offer just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you want to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Megan, you have to go on TV five days a week and talk at least, you know, through the first segment about the politics of the day. And obviously, uh, uh, this has been astoundingly easy in some sense because the, of the inexhaustible news source that was this, uh, the Trump administration. How do you think things are going to go now that, 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 um, that he's gone? I still think the dragon is sort of out of its cave. Like, I think that news is still going to be crazy. We actually had a bunch of celebrity guests book for the first two weeks between, um, Trump being elected and now coming back from the Christmas break. And I, we had to like bump a few because the, cause we needed more newsmakers on and more politicians. So I still think that the media is addicted to Trump and it will probably continue to be. Um, I, I really look forward on a personal level to being on the offense instead of the defense. It was very hard to try and defend many things that Trump did. And I have defended his supporters for a very long time. And there are a lot of good people that voted for him. Obviously, 72 million is a lot of people. But I'm sort of out of the defending. Ever since the storming of the Capitol, I'm sort of just like, I, I can't be emboldened with any of this anymore. So I don't know. We'll see. But uh, the... Women in America have decided that they want to be really, really informed. And I treat The View like I would any other news show, even if, you know, it's not not technically. I mean, it is technically a news show. It's under the news division, but it's not obviously a serious news show. It's still a talk show. But um, we're number one in America. And when I joined the show, it was struggling really hard. And um, I'm really proud of it, even though it's ridiculous sometimes and I get yelled at a lot. But I still believe in its value. Um and I, I don't think this changes. I think the drama and the chaos continues. Can That's, I ask you a favor? Can sure. I ask you a favor tomorrow when you go on the show? Sure. Can you ask your uh, far more... I asked you as a guest, by the way, several times, because my personal producer for The View, who I poached, um, not directly from you, mm-hmm. but used to work for you, my producer, Daniela, um, we have pitched you many times, John. Uh-huh. And I think you two know it. Abe, I will pitch you if you would like. Uh-huh. But never the guests I want ever get on. Well, you know, I mean, I just... It's uh, nice to be asked. <laughs> it's thought is, of is lovely. It is, it is nice to be asked. But I will... But, so I want... Here's the thing. I was struck by at the... At the... Uh, uh, today. Is that uh, Lady Gaga comes out and sings the national anthem. And then J-Lo comes out and sings This Land Is Your Land. And Garth Brooks comes out and sings Amazing Grace. Yeah. Um, the order was all screwed up. I'm sorry. Like, Lady Gaga is the biggest act there. Yeah, She's opening for J Lo. That is not right. <laughs> I, I yeah. need to hear what Whoopi has to say on this subject because I don't understand how 
Gaga's people allowed this to happen. I mean, Garth Brooks is the biggest selling solo act in recording history, but uh, he hasn't like recorded, let let, released an album in 12 years. I am deeply offended (laughs) on Gaga's behalf. I didn't need JLo there. That was my big takeaway from the performances. No disrespect to her, but I don't really, I thought it was weird to put Let's Get Loud in. I mean, I'm I'm not really much of an entertainment guy, but in, in comedy terms, you know, uh, Gaga was the opener, and uh, Garth Brooks was the closer, and JLo was the middle. And the worst thing you can be is the middle. No, so no, no, no. You, well, you're not supposed to open. Whatever you are, you're not supposed to be the opening act, and you're the biggest star. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. And something just went 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 haywire there. <laughs> Particularly when she was wearing that insane... I don't even know what that was, that insane red skirt that she couldn't even walk in. Like, you know, to start it out that way was, was you know, having taking her five minutes to walk down the stairs. That was, that was pretty weird. The other thing I want to complain about is Garth Brooks saying, takes down his mask, he sings Amazing Grace, and then he says, I want you all to sing along with me both there and at home. And he starts singing, and there's this kind of weird noise behind him because, of course, Everybody else is wearing a mask. And you're not supposed to sing next to people during a pandemic. Singing is the worst. That's why that's yeah. why churches all got shut down. I know it's bad that churches got shut down and synagogues got shut down, but uh, you know, the one thing like my my kid goes to a parochial school, they have prayers in the morning. They can't do the prayers in the morning because you're not you're you can't sing because that creates spittle. Spittle goes so I, I think Garth Brooks did did wrong there, both in a performance sense, because no one could hear anybody singing because they were behind masks, and B, you're not supposed to tell people to sing. I, I just don't know why they're still wearing masks when they're vaccinated. Well, like, are you supposed to still wear masks when you're vaccinated? Well, they're trying to set an example. For a certain, I think that, that is, I think it's like fourteen days, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. The second dose. yeah, yeah. Because also, but also, there was this idea that um, the vaccine, unlike as far as we know, I think any other vaccine, there was this idea that the vaccine may not prevent you from getting the virus, but it will prevent you from getting sick. So if you don't wear a mask after you're vaccinated, you can still spread the virus. This is another big lie. This is one of the big lies of of this period. They're trying to get everybody to wear masks so that everybody wears masks so that people won't stop wearing masks. So they're telling people who get the vaccine, you need to wear a mask because we don't know whether or not the vaccine will still be transmissible. You could have it without knowing it, but not have the symptoms. It's all nonsense. And I don't believe it. It's insanely stupid. Why, Why are you creating incentives for people not to get vaccinated? If you get vaccinated, literally nothing changes for you. Yeah. Great. So I'm going to hang out. I'm going to mask, but it's like, I just want to know if anything's ever going to end. Like if I get vaccinated, doesn't, I mean, I'm going to get vaccinated when I'm allowed to, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I just, no, you have, you have people in the medical community who are like, well, I don't know. My parents got vaccinated last week. So their, their second shot, they had, they got, uh, they got Moderna. So their second shot is on, on February 9th, and, you know, their grandchildren can come visit them. I mean, I think the whole notion, their great-grandchildren can come visit them, because I think the whole notion is, 
they're not going to get it. But, you know, you could get it from a 91-year-old person who hasn't been out of their house in a year. Trust me, you're not going to get it from them. But they can at least now be visited. Yeah. Uh, or something. I don't know. Who who knows? Like, the we keep saying the public, the, the, the messages that are being transmitted by the public health bureaucracies in the United States are discrediting of the public health bureaucracies in the United States. You cannot trust that they are telling you the truth about this, about the prevention and of lockdown. No accountability in the part of the press. Anthony Fauci outright admits to lying, the noble lie, the platonic ideal of the noble lie, to preserve you know PPEs or what have you. And everybody goes, well, that's I guess that's okay. Right. No, it's not okay. At the very least, there should be accountability on the back end of this thing. Um, he was pressed once on one of his two at least that I can remember outright mendacities in the, in the name of public health, but you're literally doing harm to your, the reputation of your industry. Uh, And he's still regarded as a hero. And I don't understand why. Well, I just want to quote president Biden from his speech, you know, today we must reject the culture in which facts themselves are manipulated and even manufactured. So we know that is uh, that is a gesture toward QAnon and the post-election. But I think uh, there is uh, a strong element of that that can be laid at the feet of the public health bureaucracy. So Megan McCain, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Say hi to Ben. Thank Give you. A kiss so from us. I Say will. Say hi to Daniela. I will. Uh And thank you, Noah, and thank you, Abe, and thank you so much for having me today on this inauguration day. It's been fun. Thanks for coming. Well, Christine will be back uh, tomorrow, so Megan can get her full compliment uh, (laughs) of us uh, uh, having having had a blessed three-day break. And so she'll be back with us tomorrow, and so will we. So for for her, thank you to Megan, Abe, and Noah. I'm uh, John Potthorts. Keep the candle burning.